Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this conversation, Jack and I sit down with Gene Munster and Doug Clinton of Deepwater Asset Management. Deepwater is a growth-oriented investment firm focused on investing in transformative technologies and innovators. In the first part of the conversation, we focus on the current landscape in tech, from the large tech companies like Apple to where Gene and Doug think the next big opportunities lie, including how big of an impact artificial intelligence could be on society and the markets. In the second part of the discussion, we can on some of the research and investing insights from Deepwater, including the importance of having investment conviction, how to think about growth expectations with high growth companies, and much more. Anyone investing in technology will want to tune in and listen to this one. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Gene Munster and Doug Clinton of Deepwater. This episode is brought to you by Alpha Architect for Advisors. Whether you're an established firm or just starting out, you know the right systems can be the difference maker to achieving your growth goals. That's why Alpha Architect now offers a suite of turnkey model portfolios that can be customized to fit your practice. Built on Alpha Architect's decades of rigorous academic research, our model portfolios aim to systematize portfolio management so that you can spend less time tinkering with funds and more time finding your next great client. Systemize today to save time tomorrow. That's building with conviction. That's Alpha Architect for advisors. To learn more about Alpha Architect's model portfolios and to schedule a consultation, visit advisors.alphaarchitect.com models. That's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot alphaarchitect.com slash models. Alpha Architect for Advisors, built with conviction. Hi, Gene. Hi, Doug. Thank you guys for joining us today. Hello. Thanks, Justin. We're going to talk technology investing, um, some of the interesting pieces of research and the frameworks that you guys are putting out at Deepwater. Um, I think what's nice about your experience is that you guys have seen a lot of different technology investing environments. And so... Um, the perspective you're going to bring, I think, today is going to be one based on sort of a little bit of history. And um, also, I think it will kind of give us some context to sort of work through what works and what doesn't work when it comes to technology investing and investing in growth companies. So that's where I want to start sort of the conversation with Eugene, which is you've been um, a few decades in investing in tech. I was, I was going to ask you, do you remember the original four horsemen? Oh, I do. Uh, let me see if I can do it. Uh, Robinson Stevens, um, Alex Brown, Montgomery. I give up. Oh, so those. I'm 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 going back to like the 2000 period. Okay, here. I was going 1995. Oh, you four, were going uh, way back. Okay, I was going way back. Yeah, 95. <laughs> those are the four horsemen. They would call them four horsemen of investment banking. I came from a research background. Both Doug and I did. But they often refer to as the four horsemen. When you think about technology investing over the last 25 or 30 years, what do you think has changed the most um, when it comes to tech investing? I think the it's become a, th- good, a good thing. I think it's become um, more, there's more of a retail presence around investing in tech. And because of that, I think you have uh, some, get some pretty wild moves in some of these stocks. So I think you've seen, you just need, a, I think, a, a stronger stomach because of, of those moves. And back in 2000, there was definitely a retail component to it, but that uh, was washed out, and it it took uh, you know 10, 10 years to kind of regain some of that momentum. 
I think the other piece too is that uh, it used to be thought of as tech as uh, something that was in the higher risk category, and now uh, tech is uh, viewed more as like a consumer staples. Uh, we do a lot of work on um, all caps and spend time looking at big tech, and I think there's a notable change going on into the street's investment thesis around Apple. Now, 20 years ago, it was a products company. It was the iPod, iPhone, and iPad. And then it became a services company where you had 20% of the revenue was more reliable, but there still was always this concern about the business kind of falling out of bed on the hardware side, given what happened with Sony, Nokia, um, uh, and uh, Motorola. And now we're starting to shift to this idea that it's a consumer staples company. And I think that is a shift in broader tech investing too, is this view that you can sleep well at night owning a tech company. Uh, 15 years ago, there's no chance you sleep well uh, at night knowing you own a tech company. And the, I guess one metric related to this uh, thesis is Apple's had two disappointing quarters in a row, whether it's their December report or the June guidance. And the stock's gone up since then when the Nasdaq's been relatively flat. And I think that is a sign that investors are progressively looking at this active install base, which is a, more of a consumer staple. So I think that's one uh, piece is that tech has gone from kind of the fringe to more of the mainstream to the ultimate mainstream, which is consumer staples. One of the things at Deepwater that we often do, and I love this question, Justin, is we ask what's changed, but we also ask what hasn't changed. And to build on Gene's answer, I think part of what hasn't changed, you know, is if you look at tech more in the maybe one to 25, $50 billion market cap range, I think a lot of the perspectives there are still quite similar to some of the things that were going on in 2000. The mega caps, to Gene's point, and even the ones, you know, Adobe's and uh, Oracle's and Salesforce's $100 billion plus companies, those are ones you can own and feel pretty good about owning. Um, but I think that the mentality around emerging tech is probably fairly similar still to 2000. I think part of that just stems from the reality that growth investing rightly or wrongly, I think has this uh, perception or has this sort of connotation for most investors that you have to take big risks and you have to swing really big. And there's some truth to that. Uh, but when you extend it to the entirety of, you know, that that market cap class, I think sometimes that forces uh, mistakes from want to be, you know, growth investors and people who are looking for uh, maybe growth in the wrong place. One of the things that we noticed on your website just in doing some research for this discussion was you have a nautical depth finder to reflect your approach to investing. So can you just tie those two things together for the audience? The depth finder is um, sort of our, our totem, our reminder of looking deeper for companies that have what we call persistent growth. I mean, that is, I would say, the focus of Deepwater. Do you remember one thing from our conversation? It's that we are really interested in this idea of persistent growth. And to find persistent growth, it often means you have to look a little bit deeper than I think most investors look at growth assets. Persistent growth, just to give you an example, if you look at Apple or Amazon, two names that probably everybody's familiar with, go back to 2011, fast forward to today, they're at 10x. Each stock is up 10x. And in that same period, the S&P 500 is up about 3x. And so what we see when we look at the 
disparity in the performance of growth assets like that over longer periods is that the market's supposed to be efficient, but somehow these stocks perform 3x better than the market over a 10 plus year period. And the reason why is because the smartphone, e-commerce, and then eventually cloud for Amazon were these opportunities that were just way bigger than the market was willing to discount at that time back in 2011. It wasn't that people doubted Apple or Amazon. They were actually great stories in 2011. They were companies that were growing very fast. People believed them. There wasn't a huge bear case on them. Um, but despite that, even though they were relatively favored, they just continued to generate incredible returns over the long run because the businesses had a much longer growth runway over the long run than the market factored in. And so those are the stories that we're really looking for with that debt finder, trying to go a little bit deeper to, to assess that reality. I'm wondering, you know, uh, are there any fundamental criteria you find like looking back that these companies that have persistent growth have in common? You know, we're quant investors and this is sort of a space where we have difficulty operating in the growth space because it, it, the things you talked about, like analyzing an actual company, it's tough to quantify that, buy that stuff. But I'm just wondering, are there like fundamental criteria when you look back at these companies, the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles that were really successful, that were sort of present that kind of show that that persistent growth might have happened? It's really hard. It one idea I would offer, the first answer would be no, and then I'm going to try to see if I can figure out one or two uh, ideas that may be worthwhile. I think when we look for conviction and persistent growth, one of the factors of conviction, I think especially in growth investing, is usually you're trying to find conviction on some intangible factor, right? Like it's usually not that, okay, this company obviously has some incredible cash flow margin and the yield is 6% and it's so obvious that we have to own it. Um, it's usually that, okay, they have this product that's incredible, that customers love. And there's this market, you know, and imagine again, go back to 2011 when, you know, 12% of the population had a smartphone. You could imagine a world, and this is totally intangible, where everybody had a smartphone. It made total sense. It was better than a computer. It was a computer in your pocket. And so that part of it, I don't, I don't think you'll ever be able to fully uh, quantify. That will always be an intangible. One thing I would say, though, is if you look at companies like an Apple, like a Facebook, like a Google that set them apart, they were all uh, growing very quickly and profitable faster than a lot of, I think, the more modern companies today who are growing very quickly and not profitable. So maybe one thing to think about as you're looking at growth in, in a more quantitative perspective is, can we find companies that have both fast growth and profitability? And I think that the qualitative sign that that kind of points to is that there's massive market demand and customers love the product so much, they're willing to pay a price now, even early on in the market, that generates a great margin for the company. Like the company doesn't need volume to get the margin. I'll add on Doug's point, just the Apple example is a good one that's an Amazon examples of persistent growth, but maybe a current one that's going on that many people may not know is a company like Nubank. And they are the fastest growing bank in Latin America. Latin America and the Caribbean, there's about 670 million people that live in there. Call it 9% of the world's population. But this would be an example of the intangible piece is for us to think about like what's really driving uh, this uh, incredible growth uh, that they're having and why could it be persistent? And in the case, just better understanding why the market would be bigger and specifically what's going on. What is a typical person in Latin America? What are the hoops that they have to jump through to do very basic banking and how new bank is uh, streamlining that. And so this is uh, an example of uh, the intangible piece to that. 
that is the hardest part of finding persistent growth and really getting your head around uh, behavior and why that consumer behavior is going to be uh, uh, faster for longer. And to both of your guys' points, it seems like, you know, great growth investors are able to see what a company can become when the rest of us can't. Like, so for, for instance, like I might have looked at Amazon as a bookseller back in the day and it, extreme, I might have said, well, they could sell some more stuff. But like AWS and stuff like that, I never would have seen it. And it seems like that's what great growth investing is to some degree is, is seeing like what a company can become where maybe the market and people like me can't realize it. If I try to simplify that, Jack, what you just said, I think it's when you find the intersection of a huge market and we think about markets as like everything markets, like would everybody in the world use this product potentially? And you could count probably 20 companies in your head that are every one company. It's like, you know, Coca-Cola is an everyone company. It doesn't have to be a technology company. Apple is kind of an everyone company, a billion plus customers. But huge market with a product that just customers can't live without, a 10x better product. I mean, that is really, I think, the essence of it too, to, to just simplify it into two things that I think you really need to find. Those are the two things that you need to find as a growth investor. One of the things that struck me looking at your website is you guys do talk about valuation. You know, some, some growth investors will say, you know, valuation doesn't really matter. You know, all these great companies are always overvalued the whole way up and, you know, you just have to buy them and not worry about valuation. But you, you do pay attention to valuation to some extent. So can you talk about like how valuation plays a role in your process? What we try to do, and, and I think we sort of think about the world in terms of, uh, you know, time as a input to valuation in three buckets. A lot of investors, I think, are just looking at, you know, what are the results going to be next quarter or maybe for this year? So there's this very short term perspective. Uh, in evaluation context. Then I think there's sort of maybe a three-year perspective. And then there's the ultra long-term investor who says, you know, we're going to look at 10 plus years. And we try to live in that three to five year zone because I think that in three to five years, it's enough where you can kind of build up quarters on years and into whatever market opportunity it is that you see, some big market opportunity with that great product that we're looking for. 10 years, the world changes so much. I think it's really hard to look out 10 years with any confidence. You know, in one quarter or one year, again, any great company can have a bad quarter. It doesn't mean that the business is bad. And so for us, when we're thinking about valuation, what we want to try to ground in is that three to five year perspective, which we think sort of smooths out this idea of you always have to pay up for growth. Because if you find really great growth, it may look expensive today and it may look expensive on that one year horizon. But if you look out three to five years and you have a massive market opportunity and you have the requisite growth, it may actually be cheap. You may look back in three years or four years and say, wow, like price I paid, now I'm, I'm sitting on a you know 10% free cash flow yield, which would be incredible even to a value investor. And so I think you have to kind of bring that perspective to the analysis of the market and the product. Let me give you a couple examples on that, on the, the uh, company that Deepwater is not invested in. It's NVIDIA. Undoubtedly, AI is as big as the internet, and we're just not comfortable with the valuation, the, the earnings multiple uh, relative to what we think the growth is going to be over the next few years. And uh, on the private side, Deepwater invests both in public and private companies. We don't see a distinction between a disruption. A lot of times it comes to the private space. We're invested in a company. We've been invested for the past five years called Rain Neuromorphics. They're a next generation uh, chip company. Uh, they don't have any revenue right now, but we think the stock, uh, the, the equity is cheap because ultimately we think that, you know, that if they do get uh, some velocity around where we think the world is going around chip processing and some of the energy that's needed to be used 
that this could be a company that could be uh, many times, you know, 50, 100 times bigger than it is today. So that's an example where if you just look at the numbers, rain is more expensive than NVIDIA. But when you look at where the world is going, we think rain is cheap relative to NVIDIA. How do you guys think about interest rates? You know, one of the arguments you see out in the market these days is obviously interest rates have come up a lot. And, you know, people who are discounting growth back to the present will say, all right, this for the whole growth space, you know, you need a significant revaluation. It's not great to be investing in growth, you know, growth type companies when rates are this high. Like, how do you think about that in your process? Do you, do you think people sort of overrate how important rates are to this whole thing? We do. And I think rates, rates matter for all asset prices. And I think that this argument that um, somehow tech is uh, incrementally more exposed is it's both true, but also perhaps overstated in the sense that it doesn't mean that some of these investments are going to end up being bad investments. If they are of the persistent variety, you can have a situation where even if rates are rising, which is pushing down asset prices, um, the growth that you have associated with a certain asset may be able to essentially outgrow that that multiple compression. And so for us, like if, if we're able to find those right companies, those persistent growth companies, it gives us sort of an incremental margin of safety as, as growth focused investors, where certainly valuations may come down in any, uh, in any environment. There may be things even beyond interest rates that bring down valuations broadly. Um, but if we have that right growth profile and margins expanding, we think that some of these companies can outperform that despite the compression. And when you think about inflation, does that change at all what you do? Like, are there certain areas of tech you're more focused on now, like in an inflationary world than you would have been? Or is it really not, not that big of a factor in what you're doing? I can put so, in the context of our day-to-day -day is that uh, we have a daily meeting. We talk about our portfolio companies. We talk uh, the next, it's a, it's a structured meeting. Uh, the next chapter is we talk about new companies that we should be adding. Uh, and then the third uh, part of the meeting is to talk about other and when we talk about interest rates and inflation, it always comes in the other category. It's something that we talk about, but we'd kind of put it third in the uh, priority list. And part of that is because that uh, that inflation, uh, there, where 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 it becomes uh, most relevant for us is like Doug said, is we do have to have a sense about where rates are going, and and inflation does impact that. Today we talked about Home Depot, for example, and. Uh, there, there are two misses in a, uh, and does the Fed going to look at that, that data relative to their next uh, raise? So we do think about inflation and, and interest rates, uh, where the piece that gets most exciting for us when it comes to inflation is to try to find persistent growth opportunities around that. So uh, we don't, we do, uh, we do not have a thesis, or our thesis is that eventually inflation is going to get under control. It may take two years, but eventually it will get under control. We'd put that at, at sub three percent. It's basically running at five, five and a half right now. And, uh, but if we had a view that it was going to run faster for longer, that would impact how we would build the portfolio. We don't have that view right now. The next part of the podcast is the one I was the most excited to do because as a value investor, I tend to be like looking at steel companies and stuff all day, and, uh, <laughs> which can be pretty boring. But you guys have, uh, you have, you have an index, an innovation index on your site, and, and you talked about five main areas of tech in terms of where you think growth is going to come from. So I was just wondering if we could go through each one of them maybe and talk about where you see kind of what someone might like me might not know about what's happening there and where you see the growth. And so I want to start with one that everybody seems to be talking about now, which is AI, um, which obviously encompasses chat GPT and a lot of this other stuff. So can you guys talk about the growth you see in that area? I can start there. And I think um, 
it's hard to be non-consensus with AI right now, I think, because it feels like everybody sort of agrees that AI is potentially, you know, on the scale of the next internet. If you think about what is the impact. And I think everybody's probably seen some of these market estimates out there that AI could be, you know, tens of trillions, potentially impact hundreds of trillions, uh, maybe in some, some Super Bowl cases uh, of economic activity. And I think that all those possibilities are on the table. When we think about AI, we have this very rough mental framework um, of, of sort of a you know, bottoms-up approach where we think about you know, the first layer is really the compute layer. And Gene mentioned NVIDIA earlier and Rain AI. You know, how do you actually create intelligence? It happens on silicon. And it's going to continue to happen on silicon in some fashion. So you have to figure out that layer first. The next layer then is generally that silicon is going to live in a cloud somewhere and the process is going to be done in the cloud and it's going to go to your you know local machine your local device or whatever so you have a cloud layer then you have a model layer so that's where open ai comes in that's actually how the model is programmed and created there's a data management layer that's layer number four there's only five one more um in the data management layer you kind of uh leverage and, and uh clean up the data make sure that it's appropriate to go into the model and then the last layer is the interface layer. So those are the five layers that we kind of think about. The interface layer is where customers, whether it be a business or us going to chat GPT and typing in a query, that's where we actually touch the AI. And as I think about those five layers, what we try to do is say, well, where is the most value probably going to be created? And maybe this will get a little bit more contrarian. We think there's a lot of value to be created in the compute layer, that first layer, the chip stack, with possibly novel processors like a RAIN approach. Maybe there's other companies. Arista is actually a company that is in our, uh, our ETF, our index that you mentioned uh, on the networking side um, that's also necessary for that compute layer. Um, the cloud layer, I think, is probably fairly well addressed with AWS and Azure and Google Cloud. Um, we're not really paying a whole lot of attention there from an AI perspective. The model layer, I think we would also argue, is fairly well, I think, addressed between Google Bard, ChatGPT, you have Stable Diffusion, you have Facebook Llama, and there's a ton of products out there that are really good. The data management layer, I think, is somewhat interesting, and there's some more private companies that play in that space. But here's maybe the most contrarian piece of the whole framework, which is I don't know that there's a lot of new value that's going to be created in that interface layer, meaning I don't think a lot of $10 billion, $100 billion companies are going to come out of the interface layer. I think they'll come from the other layers. And I actually think the market is betting on the other thing. I think the market thinks that the next interface, whatever that may be, be, uh, be chat GPT or something like that, maybe that's where... Elon's new company. Elon's new company. I would take the bet that wherever there are existing customer relationships, whether that be Google or Microsoft Bing or you know Zoom or... ChatGPT, I think that it's going to be really hard for companies to get uh, customers to move away from their current interfaces. And it's much more likely that AI is integrated into current interfaces than it is that we find mass replacement of what we're already doing. So in that sense, you know, I would say we're sort of not necessarily ignoring the interface layer, but I think we're spending much less time there than we are on some of the other layers where other investors are not as focused. Just to put the overall innovation in context, I mean, you have a lot of people talking about that this is on the level of the internet. Some people saying this is on the level of like electricity. I mean, what, how do you guys put that in context in terms of how major this 
this innovation is like relative to history? We think it's internet level innovation. So uh, begs the question, are we going to see another AI bubble? We haven't seen it yet. We've seen uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA shares go up, some other host of other ones, but it hasn't been across the board. We don't think we're going to see the same kind of bubble just because there are many investors, present company included, who saw what happened uh, back 23 years ago. And I think that creates a, a governing factor on that. But uh, we put this at the same level of AI. It's rare that uh, same level as the internet. It's rare you we come up on an opportunity that is as uh, unique as this. And I think that uh, the hype uh, ultimately will be exceeded around AI in the next decade. How about robotics? Uh, what, what are you guys seeing in robotics? What are some of the major innovations there? I think robotics has actually been, uh, I would argue, frustratingly slow. I mean, we've had industrial robotic solutions for on the order of decades now. And I think part of the um, slow path to robotic automation is that AI in some ways hasn't been ready, you know, to really, I think, unleash the, the possibilities of robotics. You need to have intelligent systems that can guide them and make sure they're safe first and foremost, but also that they can perform whatever task it is that you want them to perform. And so I think about robotics, I mean, I think self-driving vehicles fit in that category in some ways too. I mean, they're a lot like an industrial robot. And so as we see some of these innovations in AI, my hope is that that kind of accelerates some of that progress on the other side. Um, and so it's kind of a, a cop-out answer to your question, but I would actually argue that the innovation has been a little bit slower than we would have hoped for in that particular space. I'd add one onto the robotics piece. Last Friday, the Deepwater team did a tour of one of Amazon's fulfillment centers, and we wanted to kind of see where there, there were still uh, pain points. And we saw the Kiva robots. That's an acquisition Amazon did a long time ago. But if you're going to break down the Amazon Fulfillment Center into three pieces, uh, that is there's an, an upfront piece that is uh, automated. There are also pieces that are not automated. For example, when a, a, a pallet comes in and have to, we saw long lines of people that would go and, uh, and unwrap boxes and put them in other boxes as humans taking saran wrap off. Or if you're curious, uh, they won't they won't give this number. They would not give this number, but you can quickly calculate it by watching the person on the line. But the average uh, uh, per a day, the average of packages that a person packs that does a single package, so they have people who do just one package, is on an eight-hour shift is somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 packages. I mean, it is uh, painful to to see this and those are opportunities. So we leave that tour last Friday, and in our meeting today, we we're talking about a company. I'm not going to say the name of it, but uh, potentially could be an investment of ours that could help identify one of those two big pain points. I'm just curious on the Amazon thing. It just made me think of this. Like, how far are we away from like a world where like drones are just bringing the packages to our house? I mean, I know they're doing a little of that now, but is that like way out in the future, like crazy stuff, or is that something that's coming in like the next few years? I always bet on longer timelines than than Gene usually does. So. Whatever Gene says, I'll probably take the over on it. But I think that technology, just as a rule, and a, a lot of other people have said this, you know, it tends to take longer than you hope. And then it's more fantastic than, than you kind of imagined. And I think that for a lot of these things, and robotics included, that hopefully will end up being the case. But I mean, when we started uh, Deepwater, formerly known as Loop, six years ago, I think a lot of people thought we were on the brink of having real autonomous vehicles. 
And here we are six years later, and I don't personally feel like we're that much closer. We're certainly closer. I'm not trying to be bombastic, but it's not like, um, you know, we're probably a year away from widespread autonomous vehicles on the road. I mean, we're probably still more than five away if I had to, if I had to put a bet on that. Um, and I would say relative to the drone question, it's probably on that same order, maybe even a little further. And, and Doug, what's your take on the, uh, the, just kind of the noise pollution uh, piece of drones or the kind of the visual pollution that comes with them? Is, is that something that is going to be an inhibitor to its adoption? I think it probably is. I think that people, there's, there's a, um, a natural, maybe human tendency to not like the idea of these vehicles flying around their neighborhood either. I think there's a, you know, a privacy issue, invasion of privacy issue. And so there's a lot of thorny issues that we need to, to deal with and sort of these breakthrough technologies. It's a good word um, for especially, it. Yeah, especially when it involves robots being in your neighborhood autonomous, whether it's a car or a drone or, or you know, a delivery vehicle. Yeah, and you, you touched on this. I was going to ask about electric cars. You touched on this already, but I think there's, that's another place you've got the thorny issues because it does seem like in general, you know, these autonomous vehicles are going to be safer than a human being driving it. But the public perception is going to be way worse. You know, if one of these causes a crash or kills someone or something, it's going to count for like, you know, 200 on, on the side of a person doing it in terms of public perception. Right. So I think that's probably going to be somewhat of a barrier, right? In terms of how quickly we can adopt them is the standards going to be much higher. Don't get me on a soapbox here, uh, but I'm going to jump <laughs> on one anyway. I live uh, on the, our home backs up to a major highway. I think it's like 80,000 cars go past it every day. The stuff you hear on that highway uh, keeps, literally wakes you up at night. And uh, multiple accidents. I mean, there's uh, next time you're driving on a highway, just look at the road, look at the side of the road. You'll see skid marks. You'll see crash points. There's a lot of nasty stuff that happens on roads. Humans should not drive. They're distracted. And uh, that piece to me, what you just described is maddening about lawmakers being slow because of that dynamic of not wanting a machine to do it. And so I can't wait for autonomy when it comes. Doug's right. I'm always uh, hoping that this stuff comes uh, faster. Uh, you know, we don't have any direct investments in autonomous companies, probably the, but we do invest in electrification, which is going to be around that. We own LG and our ETF. Uh, on the private side, uh, we own a, uh, we can't disclose what it is, but it's a, uh, a, a large uh, battery maker as well. So I think there uh, are ways to invest in that future by kind of owning some of the building blocks. Fintech's another area where there's been tons of innovation. Can, can you guys talk a little bit about what you're seeing there? We talked about it earlier a little bit with uh, 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 Nubank. That, that's that Brazilian bank. Uh, but in general, big picture around fintech is even though there's been a lot of innovation that's happened, relative to consumers being able to access through mobile. This is all stuff that's years old or send, send payments to friends. That uh, The banking system still is uh, run uh, by the branches. And I think that's one of the reasons why Nubank is having so much success is they're essentially branch-free. And I think one of the reasons why one of our other investments, which is Block, uh, formerly Square, has had as much success with Square Payments and um, being able to, that's effectively becoming kind of the bank of the millennials. I recently um, uh, signed up for the high yield Apple savings. And uh, this is an example of a friction point, an example of us looking for persistent growth. I had uh, previously was going to open up a new account at uh, Wells Fargo a few days uh, earlier, went into the bank. I'm going to save you all the story. There was a lot of friction and red tape. I decided I'm going to exit the, the great people there. I left, did not open up the account. 
uh, Apple uh, high yield comes out, I thought, hey, I wonder if I can do this uh, instead of going over to Wells Fargo. And it must have been five minutes. I actually got my Apple card and then I got the, the savings account. It was friction free. And there was a moment there of like, this is incredible. Like, this is how banking should be. And I think that is why we put uh, fintech is even though it's not an exciting theme, isn't one of those persistent growth themes and in our investments. I mentioned New Bank and Block are two examples of that. I think one other thing I'd add to fintech is we talked earlier about some of the questions we like to ask at Deepwater, big picture questions. What's going to change? What's not going to change? I think fintech for me is one of the things where there's the clearest not going to change answer, which is even in a world where AI is, is rampant and automation is rampant and, and maybe you know the robots take over the world we are still going to be using money somehow in some form. And so I think infrastructures and platforms that make it easier to transact, whatever that looks like and sort of whatever that money might look like, I think are super valuable and will always be part of you know the fabric of how commerce gets done. And I think these platforms are just making it all digital where it's gonna be in the long run anyway. One of the things that surprises us a lot of times is we have some international relationships. And so we do some things in India. And when you look at like sort of the fintech opportunity, I'm kind of asking this question to you guys, but from my perspective, when I look at like what is over there now, just in terms of like online trading and the different tools that they have, it seems like they're like 10 to 15 years behind where our financial fintech firms are. So I don't know if you guys sort of agree with that or think that internationally, there might be maybe more or interesting opportunities there. There's a, there's a universal insight, I think, that you're pointing out, which is emerging markets, when you think about any sort of technological breakthrough, in our observation, they tend to be about five to 15 years behind developed markets. And you can think back to broadband, you can think back to the smartphone. We're now talking about sort of mobile applications when we think about uh, banking, banking of it. Mercado Libre e-commerce in Latin America. And so I think as a rule of thumb, you know, whatever is really working well in America and in Europe today, you're probably going to find it working really well in five to seven years in India or in China. And some of those countries I think are evolving faster than they were 10 years ago. Um, but I think that extends to the African continent. I think that extends to Southeast Asia. And so it's a great fishing ground for saying, hey, this worked before. It's, it's certainly going to work somewhere else because people are mostly the same and we want the same things and we want great experiences. One filter to throw on that, uh, look at management teams. We've looked at a lot of those companies, uh, those different regions and have passed because of what we felt wasn't high caliber management. Make sure you have the management team filter on top of the geo filter. This last one's really interesting for me because I've been one of the skeptics of the metaverse. You know, I was like looking at all the money Facebook was or Meta was spending there. And I'm like, what, what is going on? Why are they doing that? And then my daughter got the, the headset um, and I put on the headset and I had to like walk off a plank. I don't know if you guys have done this, this app yeah, yet. I get sick like, hearing it, but yeah. I couldn't, I literally could not walk off the plank. Like I knew I was in a room by myself. I knew I was like, had walls around me or whatever, but I, I couldn't do it. Like it, it was amazing how realistic it is. So that, that got me thinking, maybe I'm underestimating this, but I'll let you guys tell me. I mean, what do you, what do you guys see as the opportunity in the metaverse? It's definitely the one that has been uh, left out well behind AI and uh, what's gone on with electrification. But we're still believers that some form of the metaverse, and I, I mentioned that some form, that 
It's not going to be just immersive. I would guess that you tried that experience and probably didn't try it again. But what, how we think about the metaverse is just more immersion than we currently have with our phones. And part of the reason why we're optimistic about the theme is that we believe that naturally there's going to be another platform beyond mobile. If you had a view that mobile was the computing platform for consumers for the next 50 years, there's no reason for the metaverse. If you think that natural human wiring, curiosity, uh, will adventure, will, will take them to more immersive environments, whether it's 2, 3D, or a wearable, then there is going to be a place for the metaverse. And so that is our view is that, um, you know, we look at some of the, the markers that give us confirmation is, uh, look what's happening with TikTok usage and or Roblox. And um, I think that it's pretty uh, clear. I'll give you one quick example. Uh, they call it sludge content. It's on, uh, it's on TikTok. It's when you have a watch uh, a movie uh, sorry, it's like a TV show or a movie on the top of the screen and on the bottom of the screen, uh, it's a split screen and it's usually somebody playing a game. And both of them have audio content going. I, I can't watch it. It's it's just information overload. Uh, my uh, my nieces, nephews who are in their late teens, early 20s can't stop watching it. And I said, what happens when we get to three and uh, three different things in one? They, they said, well, watch that. Even better, bring it on. And I, so we're a belief that Ultimately, that that thing, whatever that is that's going on, uh, maybe it's addiction to information, uh, is going to ultimately power the way. And lastly, is that the metaverse really hasn't had much of an endorsement. They've had kind of products that have been underwhelming. And I think we'll see if Apple, in fact, comes out and shows. I don't think they're going to be selling a lot of them, but a, some sort of a mixed reality headset. And there's some big companies, of course, uh, Apple, Meta, Google, Samsung, that are all going to be investing around this and can will these platforms into reality. So that's why uh, we recently wrote about, uh, everyone's talking about AI. Uh, don't forget about the metaverse. Yeah, to, to your point about kids, like I'm, I'm finding myself becoming like the old guy now, like you know, looking at my kids, watching people gaming and stuff on YouTube and the millions and millions of views they're getting. Like I, I can't even like understand it. But obviously it's, you know, it's like when I was a kid, probably like my parents mm -hmm. couldn't understand what I was watching. So it's probably like a natural evolution. Is a natural evolution. I would just say it's it's really good at increasing engagement, which is code for uh, addictive experiences. And like, I won't even touch that. People show me a TikTok video. I said, just tell me about it. Cause I know once I see one video, I'm going to want to do look at another one. I just want to ask one more before I hand it back to Justin. Um, you guys talked about 2000 to 2002 a little bit earlier, but I just want to dig into that a little more. Um, what, what do you think, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, we're in a very similar situation to that now to what we went through in 2000, 2002. And they, they kind of use that to imply that there's way more, you know, downside in tech. There's a multiple year bear market coming. And I'm just wondering if you can compare and contrast what you saw then with what you're seeing now and maybe how they're the same and how they're different. I think it's very different. I think, uh, it's, it's, well, let me start. I think it's the same in terms of the size of the shift. I think in terms of what's happened with the stocks, it's very different. And uh, I would uh, point back to a record company uh, named KTEL. Uh, this was, uh, they had record subscriptions and tapes and things like this back in the 70s and 80s. And in the 90s, they announced that they were going to be selling on the internet. And uh, the stock went from like $4 to $40 over the span of uh, six months. And um, like that was, KTEL wasn't the exception to the rule, it was the rule. You add dot com to your uh, company description and your stock goes up. And we're seeing that same intensity level around companies 
just look at the last earnings call, how often companies refer to them as AI companies, and we do uh, private companies too. seems like every private company we talk to leads with an AI pitch, but we're not seeing that crazy 10x uh, jump in valuation like we saw in KTL in 1997. So I think that uh, basically investors are a little bit more wise to it. And yes, there is NVIDIA and Microsoft, but it's it's a much more narrow. And so, you know, is there going to be a, a burst of the AI bubble? Probably some pullback. I'll give you a great example. One, we own Google, but there's probably going to be a pullback in the next year because Google's business is going to be very different in an AI-powered uh, search experience, and they're going to have some sort of a transition in their advertising revenue. That's probably going to be a negative. So people will say, well, there you have it. You have Google went down, therefore it was just a bubble. But again, this is as big as the internet and going to be the fabric of every company, so it's hard to uh, bet against AI for the long term. Very different uh, as far as I think the risk to the market than what we saw 20 years ago. I wanted to um, work through just a few pieces of research on your website, which um, the, the research and the thoughts I think you guys are putting out are excellent. And they kind of toggle between investment philosophy, framework and process. But the first one is about conviction. And Doug, I believe you wrote this and it was sort of talking about the importance of having conviction in your investments and investment strategy, but that also finding that conviction can be uh, very difficult. And so it's like this journey to trying to find conviction. And what was interesting was as I was reading it, because there was a Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting just recently, and Buffett talked about, you know, most of his success has come through a handful of ideas. But what I didn't realize is in your article, it actually was from the 2022 shareholder meeting. So that was nothing new. I, I had, I guess, missed that from last year. But anyways, I just was wondering if you could kind of talk about conviction and investing. It's one of those things that as an investor, you know, you, you study the sport and you study um, other great investors and you hear about people talk of, of conviction. And I think until you are responsible for investing money and going through hundreds of ideas, you can't really understand how hard it is to get to conviction until you go through that process, no matter how much you read about it. And so the way that I would um, advise people who are trying to figure out how do you find conviction is think of it as your entire career's journey is really just about trying to find conviction a handful of times. I mean, that's more or less what Buffett was kind of writing in that letter, which was, you know, hey, a dozen investments over an 80-year career almost basically made all my returns. And I think that that power law is true for every investor, no matter if you're a venture capital investor, where we talk about power law returns all the time, it's always about one huge grand slam in a portfolio. Um, or if you're a public equity investor, a private equity investor, even if you're a fixed income investor, I still think that the power law applies. Um, and so just being able to know that you have to look at hundreds of things and that your default actually should be no, because you're really only going to find conviction maybe once a year if you're lucky. Um, going into the process with that mindset, I think is is really freeing and helpful. And you're still going to have to learn it for yourself, but embrace that as you work through the process. The other one that I uh, really enjoyed was this cone of expectations. And this is where you outlined how you look at the various potential future glide or growth paths that a company um, can be on. Um, can you just kind of speak to the general idea behind the article? Sure. The, the idea is um, 
if you if you think about a stock from a fundamental perspective, a price is supposed to represent you know discounted future cash flow value, and if that's true, if we kind of agree as fundamental investors that that's roughly what a price represents most of the time, then a price is actually a suggestion of a future that has to happen. It's actually a path, um, given a discount rate and given some assumptions around you know growth and things like that, and so. As we think about trying to find that persistent growth, what we like to do is say, okay, if a price is a path, there's other paths that it may actually take. Whatever path is priced in probably won't be the real path because the price is going to move over time. It might go up, it might go down. And that adjustment of the price is actually the market adjusting what path they think this company is on over the long run. Um, and so what we try to do is we try to find companies where the path that is priced in given a stock price, is not wild relative to what we think can happen, but perhaps a, just a little bit conservative. You know, something that says, hey, this is a pretty good company, but it doesn't maybe factor in persistent growth that we're looking for. So often in growth, I think we're, we're ending up paying what we talked about before, which is prices that feel high or seem high at the time. But we want over time the market to agree, actually, this is worth more than we thought before. And I think if I kind of contrast that to value investing, as we think about these various paths that prices represent, I think value investors are often looking for paths that, you know, are maybe going down and they look like the market really doesn't believe in a bright future for the stock. And then ultimately the, the future is, you know, just average, just mediocre, not terrible. Um, but I think fundamentally you can use this idea that, you know, price is a point in time and a future expected path that the market is, is assuming. And you can apply it to growth, you can apply it to value, but you want to find cases where you think the path is brighter than what the market's pricing in. And in the article you had, I thought it was good, you had these four different quadrants that you kind of asked the reader to think about. Um, and, you know, it helps kind of group the various paths more, you know, in these quadrants, because there's a lot of different ways, obviously, that a company can go. But if you kind of think about, you know, from quadrant one to quadrant one being the best, with quadrant four being, you know, potentially the worst path, um, sort of thinking about it that way. So um, can you sort of just maybe quickly walk through what those quadrants are? And to your point about moving from one quadrant to another is maybe what you want to see as an investor if it's a positive move? Absolutely. If you envision a sideways triangle, so we've got a triangle this way, you have quadrant one is kind of up here. That's, that's one that's the, the most optimistic, the best. Quadrant two is kind of, you know, top, uh, middle, quadrant three, bottom, middle, quadrant four, bottom. And each of the quadrants, I, I have names for them. Quadrant one is what I call sort of wild expectations, which is, we talked about NVIDIA before, you know, NVIDIA is pricing in, I think something like, you know, 30% annualized growth for, for several years at this point and, and high margins. There's wild expectations priced in the stock. They may do better than that, but I think the challenge with quadrant one investing is you're saying, okay, there's a pretty fantastic future priced in, and I have to believe the future is going to be even more fantastic than fantastic um, to really make money in that case. And so quadrant runs really hard, I think, to do well in because it's already got wild expectations priced in. Quadrant two is where I think a lot of growth investors tend to play, which I kind of call optimistically fair. So, you know, you're looking at a business where you probably have some pretty healthy growth assumptions still. You've got maybe some expanding margins. 
um, it's kind of the typical growth stock profile. And what you're betting on when you buy a stock in quadrant two is that it actually is a quadrant one company. It's actually gonna deliver on a pretty fantastic future and you're just paying for a fairly optimistic future. Quadrant three, I think, is where value investors often play, where it's sort of the pessimistically fair future, where you know maybe there's some deterioration in growth, maybe there's some margin uh, margin degradation that seems to be priced in, and you're just betting on maybe you know things stabilize and get a little bit better, and some of the underlying value of the asset is is recognized in that context. And then quadrant four, which is the worst quadrant, kind of the hardest quadrant, is so bad that it's probably bad, and that. Well, you know, the example I tend to use there, and maybe this one's actually going to work out, is Carvana. You know, things that end up being going concerns because maybe there's a debt issue. Um, maybe they're running out of cash. For whatever reason, um, you know, the company looks like it may not even survive. That's where Quadrant 4 is. And so in that case, it's really like distressed investors often play in kind of that Quadrant 4. And then they're hoping that maybe it just ends up in Quadrant 3 um, and survives in that case. I'm just wondering, like when we look at like the successful growth and growth companies, like the Amazons of the world, do you, they would have been in like in a bunch of those quadrants throughout. Like, I mean, there were times where people were questioning Amazon. So is yeah. that sort of typical? They, they'll move between those quadrants over, over time. They do. And I think even recently, I mean, one of our holdings meta, I would argue was probably in quadrant three in October and November last year. You know, I think the, the commentary, we're talking about the metaverse earlier around how much they were spending on the metaverse. Um, and just cost being out of control was super negative. I think investors' sentiment was super negative. And the assumption was, you know, the metaverse is just going to be this sort of black hole of cash. TikTok's coming in. Uh, Facebook's never going to grow again. Instagram's irrelevant. You know, it was basically like everything was going wrong for meta. And I think now, I would argue they're in quadrant two, maybe heading toward quadrant one, uh, depending on how you feel about their future. Um, but the narrative completely changed. And I think that was a byproduct of fundamental changes made by company management where they're starting to look at expenses more uh, uh, sanely and cutting back maybe on some of the things that were a little bit frivolous, starting to reduce some excess headcount. You know, all that, I think, totally changed the way that investors saw that future path where instead of it being you know, sort of negative looking, pessimistic in quadrant three, now we've got something where, hey, margins probably are going to expand for the next couple of years, if not, you know, just from some of the cuts they're making, regardless of what happens on the top line. I wouldn't think I'd be bringing up Fama French in a growth investing focused <laughs> discussion, but uh, it kind of reminds me of they had a paper called Migration and they were talking about sort of value stocks migrating from value to neutral to like kind of their, their definition of growth, I guess, or expensive. And that that migration was, you know, they were asking or kind of getting at that that migration could be uh, driving the value premium. But to me, it seems like if I was a growth investor, like I'd want to try to find those that are migrating up in, in terms of the quadrants. That would be the sweet spot. I think that's fundamentally what we're what we're looking for. And ultimately, you know, we talked about this idea of persistent growth. If we can find those persistent growth companies always end up in quadrant one at some point because they deliver on wild expectations over the long run, the apples, the Amazons. And so if you can find those, whether you find them in quadrant two or quadrant three or quadrant four, you're going to do really well. And if you can find that conviction to say, hey, I found one that's in quadrant three and it's going to the top of quadrant one, where in some cases, I think Apple probably was down there when they had uh, China imploding. I think this was in 2016, maybe when, when Buffett bought the stock. 
Um, everybody thought the growth story was over. They thought the iPhone was over. Gene, you probably remember this really well. Um, and sentiment on the stock was negative. They were in quadrant three. And obviously, since then, I think the stock is four or five X. And so it's been a great investment. I think that that's what every investor is probably really trying to do, whether they, they call themselves growth or value. If I could just put a plug in, you're getting just a teaser about some of Doug's philosophy. Check it out. Uh, follow along with him. He does a great job with it. it it's uh, in the insights part of our uh, Deepwater MGMT uh, website. Uh, and uh, I always love uh, following along, Doug, and, and participating in all of your incredible philosophy. For sure. And just two more before we uh, let you guys go. And we'll put links to all that um, in the show notes. And please go check out this research. It's really good stuff. But Doug, do you think any, I'm curious, do you guys in your, in your process, is any of this quantitatively driven? Um, or it, it, or could, could you see different factors coming in here to try to identify companies in these quadrants? Um, maybe we've explored a little bit. One of the, one of the other tools we use that is maybe a little bit more quantitatively, uh, oriented is we have what we call a base rate Bible, which is if we look back historically at companies that ended up in quadrant one, persistent growth companies, sometimes we call them hall of fame growth companies. Um, what actually happened in their trajectory and what did some of their prices along the way sort of assume, um, in terms of forward growth. And um, I don't know yet how we could factor that kind of quantitative input into our process, other than right now we use it as a check against the, the companies we do analyze and say, okay, if, if we're looking at a company and we're doing the fundamental work and it looks like, you know, uh, to justify this price, maybe the, the stock has to expand margins by, you know, 30 uh, percentage points, and they need to grow the top line at a 25% CAGR for five years. Like how realistic is it for us to assume this will happen? And our base rate Bible says, okay, well, there's only like eight companies that did that in the last 10 years. So if this company does that, they're going to be a pretty incredible company. And then we can kind of frame that bet and say, well, do we think this company is going to be in the hall of fame or do we not have that level of conviction yet? So uh, it's really, it's an interesting concept to figure out how can we, how can we use more quantitative elements to the process? Um, and I think that that's the answer for us, but we haven't figured out exactly how to do it yet. I love base rates. So we have um, one standard closing question and whoever has to go at three can take the first. Do you guys can, uh, so right up against the three o'clock. So I know you guys are whatever, two o'clock for you. So the, and the question is based on your experience in the markets and your research, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Mine would be 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 contrarian about where the world is going. And I, I would go back to, to conviction, which is um, set yourself up in a way such that you can find conviction. You know, you have, I think you have to have the right um, strategy. You have to have the right process. You have to believe in what you're doing before you can believe in what you're, what, what you did actually came to a result where you say, I really believe in this. Um, and so defining kind of who you are as an investor and what you believe as an investor, um, is really the first step in conviction. So start there, you know, and then really get deep into stocks where I think often people do it the inverse and you kind of find it along the way. I think it would accelerate your path. If you, if you start asking the, who am I, who I want to be as an investor question first. Guys, this has been great. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We had a lot of Thank fun. You. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. 
You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.